And if you're, if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 701. We're in Matthew chapter 24, and I'll begin in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the question there that frames this entire what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Now he's going to give an answer that's what we know as two chapters long, privately to his disciples. Verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go. Or, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and that all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let us pray. Father God, we we come before you once again in the name of your one and only Son, giving you thanks for, for who you are and for what you have done more than anything else, what you have done in him, in sending him to live a life that we cannot live and to die a death that we even now should be dying and to rise again victorious over Satan and sin and death so that all who put their faith in him would become your children, would be made right with you, would have forgiveness of our sins, righteousness on our soul's account because of him and would have everlasting life in his name. We thank you that he ascended to your right hand again from where he's reigning now, ruling by the power of your spirit. And we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit who has given us a complete and sufficient word from you in this very book that we call the Bible. And in these times where there are so-called Christ teachers, many false prophets that are arising and, and making statements in the name of Christ, and where we see many of these things spoken of in this passage and others like it, where we're starting to feel more hostility because of being Christians, would you help us to stand firm to the end? Would you help us even now through this moment, through moments like this where we look into your word intently. Help us to be diligent uh, listeners of your word, diligent receivers and believers in Christ. And more than anything, use your word, we ask at this time now, to, to shape us, to make us more like him. Blessed Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make this word illuminated in our minds at this time, that you would shine it brightly into our hearts and minds 
so that we would see Christ and we would see his glory and we would look to that moment more than the next moment in this life and even many good moments that you give us that our hearts would gradually cherish the coming of Christ more than any other good thing that might come from his hand in this life. So we ask that you do these things and and all the things that you alone know need to be done in our hearts. For your own glory we ask this and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize that the um, title from last week is up there, but I guess you could say this is Perseverance of the Saints Part 2. The the title that I had uh, made for this sermon is actually Our Times Are in His Hands. But as as I said, all of these two chapters really fall into the category of Jesus encouraging His followers to persevere to the end. And I have five points that I want us to really consider from this passage today. The first one is this. A great sign, the sign of the final age of humanity. The sign of the final age. Secondly, the tribulation. A period of material and spiritual shaking. Third point, the true word of God against false prophets. Fourthly, the unmistakable return of Jesus. And finally, the enduring word of God. So let's look at this first point together. The sign of the final age. Just look at verse 15 once more with me. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those who are in let that let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, one of the challenging things about any biblical prophecy, and this is the case with a lot of biblical prophecy, but especially with one like this, is that sometimes prophecies have more than one or two applications. Never contradictory applications, because God does not stutter or contradict himself. But sometimes you see a first application of the prophecy and then a fuller one, and then usually in Christ himself, you see the fullest application of all biblical prophecy because all scripture points us to him. But when he uses this phrase here, the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation, depending on your translation. You notice he says, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. And so if we were to go back to the book of Daniel, you would see Daniel making a prophecy using the same exact phrase. And the best, I think the best understanding of Daniel's prophecy was that he was prophesying about something that took place a couple hundred years after Daniel um, spoke about this prophecy, after God spoke through him. Um, again, that is the, the purpose of a prophet, to be the mouthpiece of God. 
And we see Jesus here operating as the, the final and ultimate prophet, God incarnate. But Jesus is using this phrase, which was used to refer to something that took place long before Jesus was born into his humanity, was conceived in the virgin's womb, long before he walked on this earth physically. It was an event that took place when a a king of what what are known as the Seleucids, a Seleucid king, came into the temple after defeating Israel and basically desecrated the temple by offering false worship, by sacrificing pigs on the altar of God. If you know anything about the history of the temple, God had a very specific order for who was to go into his temple. First of all, it was only Jews. Then it was only a sect of Jews or a selection of of one of the the tribes. And then for them to even enter what is known as the Holy of Holies, they would have had to go through a number of rituals to set themselves apart in God's sight. You'll also know that in the Old Covenant, which doesn't apply to us today, the sacrifice of pigs... And the actual intake and the, the consumption of pigs was not allowed because it was an unclean meat. God gave the old covenant people, and I'm stressing the words old covenant. He gave the old covenant people a list of things that they, they could not eat that were seen as unclean. So when this king that Daniel prophesied about came in and basically committed the the worst kind of blasphemy he could. He didn't just beat the people of God in war. He entered the Holy of Holies and then he sacrificed unclean meat on the altar. So when you see the word abomination, that's kind of what it's getting at there. That's an abomination. It is a high offense against God and desolation is what they experienced in that moment. But as I mentioned, Jesus is... Remember, he's giving these two chapters as an answer to his followers who came to him privately, privately, we're told, in those first few verses of 24, and asked him when these types of things would take place. So Jesus says, when you see, not when they saw, but notice again, when you see standing in the holy place, which this comes back to what I was saying before. Jesus is using something that has taken place before to say, you're going to see something extremely similar take place. You'll see it with your eyes. And he says, the abomination that causes desolation, he he applies the same description. I mentioned this last week, but after Jesus said this, roughly 35 years or so, after this was said, maybe 40 years, after Jesus had ascended, The Romans ransacked Israel and destroyed it. And the the hottest point of their destruction was aimed at God's temple. Because every nation, even nations that claim to be atheists, because of the way we're designed by God, we are worshippers. We believe in something, some sort of higher power, even if we deny that. That is what it means to be human. And for the nation of Israel, the heartbeat 
of their identity was the temple. So, in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Israel, they also destroyed the temple. And I mentioned that there's a historian named Josephus who basically gave us a a good description of that destruction. He said that it was so serious that you couldn't even locate for a while where the temple existed. It's one thing for us to uh, rent some heavy equipment and come and knock down a building like this. But in a time when that didn't exist, between fire and, and trampling and whatever means they used, that temple was so desecrated in 70 AD. As Jesus said, look again in verse 2, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Just like that. That's exactly how they left the temple. So in this case, Jesus is saying that what we now can look back at and see as that 70 AD destruction by the Romans was the same attitude, the same spirit, not as in like a personal spirit, but the same kind of hatred and and anger against God's people was applied. And he calls it the abomination that causes desolation. Now, there may be a case in which in the future, something even greater takes place. As, as many of you probably know, there's a third temple that's being built. But one thing that I want to caution us about, and I mentioned this last week, and we'll get to this in, in one of our points today, don't be a sign chaser. Don't spend all of your mental, don't, don't, don't use up too much mental energy or time because it's limited. Chasing signs. One of the things that I believe is clear in this, in this final Olivet Discourse and Jesus giving these end times prophecies is that Jesus actually intentionally doesn't give us some specific details because he doesn't want us to be distracted. But this sign that I'm calling it a sign of the final age, this destruction of the temple stood as a sign for the, the last age of humanity. Think about that for a moment. When this temple was destroyed, if you look down at verse 21, you see, for then there will be great distress, or some translations say tribulation. The, the destruction of the temple brought in a period of time that I think is best understood as Since Jesus actually uh, died and rose again and ascended, we have been living in the last age, the last days, the last epoch of human history, which is best classified as the tribulation. I don't think this is something that we're waiting to see at a future moment. But I'm not going to spend much more time on that because I'll tell you this. The amount of different commentators that you will find on these two chapters, you could spend the rest of your life until you're in your grave trying to read them. There are a lot of different opinions about some of these things, but the sign of the temple being destroyed was symbolic for the people of God. And remember, Jesus is not speaking to Jews here. 
He's not speaking to people who are religiously Jews. He's speaking to those who are committed to him. He's speaking to Christians. You could call them Jewish Christians. But he's speaking to his followers. And notice that Jesus doesn't just prophesy that this symbol of the, the last age is is going to take place and how it's going to happen to some degree. He doesn't just prophesy the destruction. He prophesies how they should deal with it. It's very simple. Run for your life. You look at verses 16 through 20. Flee to the mountains. If a man's on his rooftop, don't go down to your house to take anything. Run to the mountains. If someone's in the field, don't go back to get your cloak. Run for your life. In other words, if you see people gearing up to fight the Romans when this time comes, I'm telling you from now, you will not succeed. Go to the mountains, you'll survive. So you see that even in this prophecy, Jesus is shepherding his present and future followers to sustain them. Look at what he says, how dreadful in verse 19, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, some people, some commentators have said, well, he must have been speaking to Jews too. He must have been trying to lead the Jewish people, even if they rejected him as the Messiah. But I don't think that we need to take that view. I think what he's simply saying is this. If you're pregnant or nursing, pray that there are no natural challenges like winter it would be naturally very challenging for any pregnant woman. I don't know. I can't know. But you all do. To move around in winter. Especially to flee to the mountains. Or nursing mothers, the same thing. So pray that there are no natural hindrances like that. Or, remember, they're living in the context of this Jewish nation. This has been their life. And it won't be changed all that much. The society, that is. It's similar to the old Sundays that some of us are still grieving about. That some of us are disappointed about the way Sundays used to be, right? Where everything would pretty much shut down because the predominant cultural view of the day was to at least respect Christianity, to at least have respect for the Lord's Day. Jesus is saying, hopefully... The, the regulations that used to be in place on the Sabbath day will not be a hindrance. Because what are you trying to do? Run for your life. This destruction is going to be severe. And this temple destruction, again, was a sign. It, didn't, it wasn't the actual act or event that brought in the final age. That was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But it was the sign that taught the people of God that you have entered what are now called the last days by most of the apostles. And I just want you to notice, look how central Christ himself is to all of history. But notice connected to that closely, how central God's people are to all of history. The entire human race as we know it, our existence is impacted by this one event that in the grand scheme of history might not seem like a lot. But the destruction of this temple, which symbolized not just the, the events that took place um, 
to the Jews what, what it symbolized, but it symbolized that there's a new covenant. If God had seen that there was a continuing need for that temple, He wouldn't have allowed it to be destroyed. But what Christ accomplished in His own death and resurrection is what the temple in all of its wonder and glory could only foreshadow and could not achieve what we'll be commemorating later on this morning. So you see how central God's people are to the whole of history. But this brings us to the second point, the tribulation. As I mentioned, the tribulation is what I believe we've been living in since this time and will be brought to an end when we see Christ return. Look at verses 21 through 28 and we see in a few of those verses some of the things that we need to know about the tribulation. You see, first of all, that there are a number of events, natural events, man-made events, and false prophets, signs. Look at verse 24. It says, great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. There are these false prophets, these false Christs, in fact, after Christ left the earth, there were actually people going around saying, I'm the Christ, trying to gain a following. And a little bit less today, but there are still people who are deceiving others by saying that they are the Messiah. Believe it or not, today. But usually that doesn't happen exactly in that way. Usually people deceive others by saying, I have the one true message of the Christ. Let me tell you about the Christ. And one of the most effective ways they do this is not by using the Bible, but by telling people that God is speaking directly to them. And I will tell you this, the most dangerous thing that you can do is attempt to follow God by following a person that is not pointing you back to Scripture. Amen. If there's one thing we have learned through the Gospel of Matthew so far, it is this. The way in which Jesus accomplished the righteousness that He achieved through His life, the way in which He lived in perfect submission to the Father's will, was not by making things up on the fly as He went, but rather by putting Himself under the authority of the previously spoken word of God. Now if the Son of God, the Eternal One, through whom all things were made, took on flesh and submitted Himself to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word, does it not seem wise that we do the same thing? It is the wisest, the only wise thing to do, and everything else is foolishness. But Jesus says that these false prophets and these false Christs are actually going to have the ability to perform great signs and even miracles. And we are also told in Scripture we shouldn't be surprised because Satan is disguising himself as an angel of light. The prince of darkness can appear as an angel of light. So one of the things we have to be careful of is where we are seeking to get the revelation of God from. And it can't be even from a pastor. 
primarily. It should be from the Word of God. This is what I've been urging us to do. We have to be a people that saturate ourselves with Genesis to Revelation over and over and over in whatever order you want to do it until we see Christ with our own eyes. Because we see Him by faith now through His Word. And this is how God has chosen to speak to us, to reveal Himself to us in the ultimate sense. And Jesus again, He's shepherding His people in this time of tribulation. Because one of the things that these world disasters and false teachers and others turning away from the faith has the capacity to do is to cause us to become distracted. As I said at the beginning, Christ never encouraged His followers to become sign chasers. If Christ was alive and, and speaking in our terms here today to us, He would say something along the lines of, yes, these events are going to take place, but don't look at Fox News to interpret these things. We don't need to, to look to the news. We should pay attention to what's going on. We should be prayerful about it. But these events, whether man-made or natural, should never cause us to doubt God's goodness or God's power, nor should we seek to form our understanding of God's character off of what we see around us or what we feel or what others claim to know or hear from God, but rather on Scripture alone should we be guided and guarded. And we see Christ shepherding His people by saying these things. Just look at verse 27 one more time. You'll see there's, no, there's not going to be any confusion when Christ returns. That brings us to the third point. Because in verse 27 he says that it's going to be like lightning. You ever tried to block out lightning? You could put maybe three or four layers by your window and have all the lights on in your house. And when the lightning strikes, you still see those flashes coming through. You can't unsee it. In other words, there's no secret code. There's no Da Vinci code to make sure you're on point or on time when Christ returns. Every eye will see Him, He says. In the same way that it happens in an instant, and it's unmistakable. Every eye is going to see Him when the Son of Man comes again. And so, even the, the non-believers, before I get to the third point, even unbelievers are blessed by God's protection and provision and shepherding of His people. When He says there in verse 22, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. He's showing that He does have a, a special covenant people. But what is being cut short is suffering that everyone, to some degree, is experiencing. This is a, a fulfillment of the prophecy that was made to Abraham when God said, I will make you a blessing to all nations. Even in the cutting short of days, the church is a blessing to the world. The third point I want us to look at is the true word of God. I've already started mentioning this I suppose the true word of God against false prophets 
This once more, look at verse 24. False prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. If there's one thing that we should be comforted by, is that if we are truly believers, Satan will never convince us that God's word is not true. But again, one thing he can do with false teachers is confuse us and distract us and even for a time, to a degree, divide us over things that are not essential. Things that are not absolutely foundational. And this is why more and more as the day draws near when Christ returns, we as Christians need to know what it is that is primary we need to know what it means to be a Christian. What are those first order truths, doctrines that we have to believe? The virgin conception. The sinless life of Christ. The substitutionary atonement. The, the sacrifice that he made on behalf of whoever will believe in him. The bodily resurrection. And by the way, the, the, the phrase might not even do it justice because... There's no such thing as resurrection for a spirit. So when we say Christ was risen from the dead, that's saying he rose bodily. But man is body and soul, body and spirit. There are false teachers in certain movements. One of the buildings down our road here, Kingdom Hall, this is what they teach. That it was a spiritual resurrection along with other heresies. We need to know a little bit about what are the essential truths of the gospel and what we deny. Throughout the ages, the church has been clear on what it believes and also what she denies for the purpose of protecting and shepherding people in the truth. And this is essential for us today too. We can disagree about secondary things. We can disagree about style of worship, style of dress in services, whether we wear a tie or a t-shirt. We can disagree about a lot of things. We can even disagree about the times of our services. We can disagree about modes of baptism. We can disagree about church membership and the specifics of how that should work itself out. But we cannot disagree on who Christ is in his essential nature and that it is by faith in him and in his works only without anything added to them by which we are saved. To disagree on that is to make a personal step outside of the very Christian faith. But the way that we do that is not even just by traditions or creeds. It is first and foremost and all the way through Scripture alone. That's why, again, we have to be a people of the Word. The only way we can guard against false teachers, the only way we can test what is true, is ultimately by Scripture. Fourthly, we see that this return of Christ is unmistakable. Look at verses 27. Look at verse 27 again. As the lightning comes from the east, is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then jump to verse 29. Immediately after 
the tribulation, some translations say, or immediately after the distress of those days. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. You notice he doesn't tell us what the sign is, right? He, he gives us some idea when he talks about the sun being darkened. and But again, there's a measure of curiosity. There's a measure of wonder and, and of mystery that is left here. But because he makes it clear that when he appears, we will see him. We don't need to get into long disagreements. Again, this falls into secondary or, or even third level matters. You can be a Christian and have a different view on the millennium. You can have a different view on things like the second coming. But I guarantee we won't care about it when we see him. And even if we don't, so to speak, get it all figured out. When we see him, if we are believers, we will rejoice. And we will be like him. We will see him and be like him at that moment. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is the favorite title that Jesus used for himself. I think I mentioned this sometime last year. Jesus' favorite self-identification was the Son of Man. And he gets it from Daniel chapter 7. I think verses 13 and 14. Where Daniel's having this, this great night vision and he's dreaming the Lord is giving him a vision and he says that he saw one like the son of man approaching the ancient of days and that basically an everlasting kingdom is turned over to him and so Jesus over and over uses this title to speak of himself because the nations in this vision that Daniel has are worshipping the son of man And God makes it clear He shares His glory. He shares His worship with no other. You see that Jesus, in using this title again, is showing something of who He is. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And this picture that He's giving us, He is the one who supersedes the material realm. Somehow, Though Jesus has now taken on bodily form, you will see him riding, in a sense, on the clouds. I mean, it's pretty basic. None of us would dare to jump out of a plane and try to ride on a cloud. It would be a short trip. But when he comes again, it is going to defy all logic in a way that can't be fully understood or explained. Coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is the picture here of heaven with the person of Christ and His holy angels coming down to earth. This is the moment when all time and space and matter as we know it is going to be undone. And as the book of Revelation says at the end, all things will be made new. This is the moment to which we as Christians should look, not just in the hard times, but in the good times. And let us be honest, 
at least between ourselves and God and our hearts to God this morning. It is probably the case, just like it is with me, that many of us, out of frustration and being fed up and whatever else you want to add to that list, have just said, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. Because we're ready to give up. I think as Christians, we need to spend more time reading, understanding, believing, and meditating on moments like this, not just so that we can look to Him and look to this moment when we're ready to give up, but so that this can be the driving force under our hoods. This can be what drives us, what motivates us to see that moment come. When all of our sinful inclinations, our personal problems, and I'm not talking about problems we have with people, I'm talking about the man in the mirror, right? When all of these things that we know we would rather be rid of, and the one who saved us from our sin, will be with him and he will rid us of all of these things. The impact that sin has had on our creation will be done away with. You read the book of Revelation. One of the things that you see in there again is that there will be no sun because the Lord Himself will be the light. There's a lot of metaphor mixed in these kinds of apocalyptic and and prophetic literature. But I think the ultimate point there is that there is going to be an entirely new cosmos The the, the entire creation is going to be remade. We will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And notice this. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet. Um, Again, who, who owns the angels? Yeah, God. The angels submit to no one. They were made to be ministering spirits. They don't submit to us. People talk about, I have my angel and things like that. No, 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 no. The angels submit to God. They're different creatures than us. We don't become angels when we die. There's a limited amount of them that were created at the beginning of creation. They're not humans. Only we were made in God's image. But these amazing creatures that would probably give us a heart attack if we saw them right now. That were made by God to minister to man. Jesus is the one who rules them. In other words, this is not a created person here who is somehow made perfect. This is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. According to the plan of the Father, sending His angels, He owns them. With a loud trumpet call, that's a signal of victory. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So again, we are not going to miss this moment. We don't have to spend too much time looking into all the details. But one of the things we do need to do is fix our eyes on Christ. Is be under his word. Is try to saturate our lives with his word. Focus more so on being faithful, whatever your calling is, whatever your job is right now, whatever your career is, 
whatever your lack of career is, your relationship status, where God has you right now, focus on being faithful and not trying to figure out all of the details of how things are going to unfold. That's God's business. And thank God. You know how much of a headache that would be if we had to figure everything out? We can't change it anyway. Christ is trying to comfort his followers here. The last point here is the enduring word of God. Just look once more at that final verse that we that we are looking at today. Heaven and earth will pass away. Again, heaven. It's referring not to the location where God dwells. That will not pass away. It's, it's the, the most likely use of the word in Genesis 1 where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is speaking to the realms beyond our eyesight. The, the realms we can see, they have clouds, but up, up, up and above that, far beyond what we can see, way past what telescopes can see, the heavens, the heavens. That's what Psalm 19 is talking about when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above, the firmament above, proclaim the, His handiwork, display His handiwork. So, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You notice the sovereignty of Christ as he's teaching his disciples. The greatest sense of comfort that any true believer will ever have is to know that our God is sovereign. Is to know that nothing will thwart his plan. That nothing catches him off guard. And even though it's hard to understand and it's hard to even accept at times, even the worst case scenario that we've been through and that we will face is used in the hands of a sovereign God for great good. Indeed, that's what he says through Paul in Romans 8.28. He says, For God, uh, He works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And so, God doesn't figure out how to make it work after the fact. He makes it work. Doesn't mean he takes pleasure in death. Scripture makes that clear. He takes no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked or anyone that, therefore. Doesn't mean he smiles at everything. He has, he has emotions in a sense. He has affections towards various things. But he is in sovereign control. And you want to know what the, the best picture of this is that we can find? The cross. Was it the will of God for the Son of God to be crucified? Absolutely. Was it a crime for them to crucify Him? Of course, because He was innocent. In fact, the greatest injustice that was ever committed by a human hand was committed on Calvary. But through the greatest act of human injustice, the justice of God was satisfied for all time, for whosoever believes in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, God the Father, made him to be sin, to be treated as if he committed our sins, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ, that because of the righteousness that is his and his alone, and because he has died and paid the penalty for sin, that whoever believes in him, we, we no longer stand before God as guilty, but as our debt having been paid in full, he, he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. And not only do we receive forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit continues to impart power to us, impart the character of God to us so that we can walk in his strength. Try to picture this in your mind as I close. The only way for God to see you as a Christian today, the only way for God to see you as a Christian today is to see you by turning to his right. The only way God the Father sees us is by looking at his son now because that was his mission so that those who trust in him will be in Christ. We receive a new identity. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he says in chapter 2 that we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Take comfort in that today, Christian. And if you're not a, a Christian, if you're not a believer today, and you're here or you're listening at some point, I want you to consider the implications of that too. It doesn't matter where you were born, how you look, how you sound. Every single human being can only fit into one of two categories. We were all born in Adam in sin. When we came into this world, we were sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And by God's grace, you can be born again. You can be born into the covenant family of God. And you're either right now, either just in Adam, which is the same as being in sin, or you're in Christ. That is the definition that, that divides the entire human race. That's really the descriptor. And so... I ask you this morning if, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your trust in Christ and in Christ alone for who He is and what He's done, I ask you that today would be a day that you truly repent. Change your mind about how you think about your sin, about Him as the perfect Savior. Our sin is so serious that no system of sacrifices for thousands of years and that not even the best of men and women that live in this world can make up for it. It took the death of the eternal, perfect Son of God to pay for our sins. And if we do not find ourselves believing in Him, we will suffer the eternal wrath of God. I plead with you if you're hearing me, repent and believe this gospel. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hear him saying to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and and burdened by your sin and by everything else you may have in this life. Come to me, and you will find rest for your weary souls. And so for all of us, let us again come to him at this moment in prayer. Remembering, as we started this sermon, thinking about that our times are in his hands. Let us pray to him. Lord Jesus, we we do ask that at this time, if there's anyone here, anyone listening, now or later on, that hears this, this message, that you would convict them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the work of piercing the heart of someone today, of someone at this moment, that you would take the Word of God and, like a surgeon, lovingly and powerfully pierce down into our souls. Remove the, the heart of stone for someone now and, and give them a heart of flesh. For those of us who, who came here believing, who are listening, and, and we are believing, we are born again. We are Christians already. Let us also be pierced. Bind us up after you pierce us. Give us exactly the medicine that you know our souls need. Wherever we see areas in our lives that we need to repent, give us the the will and the power to do so. And help us to believe that our Savior and Lord is sovereign and to find great comfort and strength in that that no matter what we are going to do after this service and throughout the rest of the week that is exactly where you want us to be for the time help us to be faithful where we're at help us to to bloom where we're planted as we say help us to Remember that there's an ultimate mission that we all share. To be in the business of making disciples, which begins with sharing the gospel. So I pray right now for everyone listening, if it's in our cubicle at work, or or with another co-worker, or a friend, or someone we bump into on the road, any, any chance that we get an open window, may we be a people that long to, to cherish, and to know more about, and to share the good news of the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your patience with us so many times. We know we're unfaithful in many ways. But we ask now that you'd equip us to stand firm to the end, be good witnesses who live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.